0: The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now here is our speaker. Our Father, we are thankful for the evening and we are thankful for the opportunity to be together. We are thankful for your word. that tells us about our relationship that we have with one another, the relationship that you have with us, that the Son has and that the Spirit has. And we just ask as we look at these things tonight that we might appreciate those relationships even better and we thank you for it. Amen. So we ended last week um, at the end of chapter 14 where they get up to leave. Jesus is not going to run from um, the coming, the ruler of the world that is coming Uh, to him he's actually going to go and face that and we saw that last week in verse 31 Uh, let us go from here so he's going to go and face that and as he goes out and because he says let us go from here there's a lot of people when we come into verse one it says i'm the vine you are the branches there's people just saying people that suggest oh they left and they went out and they were walking through a vineyard and jesus starts talking about doesn't tell us that that's what he was doing but it's amazing how often I've come across this when you're reading commentaries, trying to figure out why Jesus does this. Well, he does it because it's a really good illustration. Even if, even if there was something in a vineyard that they're walking through on their way out to the garden um, where he will end up praying, um, this this is a really good illustration of John fourteen twenty. 20. Uh, you and me and I and you, this is a really good illustration of how that relationship works, okay? By the way, I just have to say, this illustration up here that Josh drew two weeks ago when my granddaughter was here and was sitting on my lap, she's drawing on a piece of paper and I'm looking at this, trying to figure out what she's drawing and I said, what are you drawing? And she points up to that corner and she was doing her best to try to replicate Josh's illustration that we have been using for for many years. So food, food has arrived. One of the families came straight from practice, and they're going to they're going to eat.
1: They're
0: going to make the rest of us hungry all over again, smelling good food. Anyway, verse one then, as he talks about this, he says, "I am the vine." Who's speaking? So Jesus is the vine. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And the Father is the? The vine dresser. If you looked at this in Greek and you didn't have an English translation associated with it, the word that's translated vine dresser is the word George or Georg. Okay? And if that means farmer, but a person that raises grapes... We call him a vintner or, or that or that's the person that does wine, but a vine dresser, person that tends to vines. But it's just that's just an English version because it's actually just the word farmer. There wasn't any distinction in what Jesus says. Uh, just trying to clarify that, it's there's not a special word, because we have other places we have the idea of farming and such used uh, in scripture. Um, so it says, I am the vine or the true one, and my father is the vine dresser or the farmer, the one that tends to them. Every branch in me, where's the branch? In the in, in, in me, in the vine, that does not bear fruit, he takes it, and every branch bearing fruit, he cleanses or prunes it that it might bear much fruit. And if we can get through those two verses tonight, I would be happy and I'm gonna say that. Well, probably we'll hit verse three. You are already clean through the word which I've spoken. But the reason is because there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in verse two or a lot of claims that go on in, with regard to verse two. First thing is here in verse two, where does it tell us that each branch is? I already asked a question once, but
1: okay, so
0: it's, it's in me, okay? So when we look at that, every branch in me, then what kind of person is that? It's a believer. An unbeliever cannot be in the vine, okay? So, so we're talking about believers, believers that are in the vine. Remember, G, what Jesus is doing here is he is applying um, the idea that we have back from chapter 14:20 about us being in Christ and Christ being in us. And this this is gonna be an illustration of how that all works. So here we are, we're branches, we are in Christ, but he says, but there's some that don't bear fruit. They don't bear fruit. Now, when you start talking about fruit, there are a lot of people that run to, and I want you to do this for a moment, I want you to run over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. and We're going to go to verse 15 when you get there. Matthew 7 and verse 15. He says, beware or watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but within they are ravenous wolves. From their fruits you will know them. Who's he talking about when he says by their fruits you will know them? Ravenous wolves. The ravenous wolves. Not only, and the ravenous wolves are false prophets. Believers are unbelievers. unbelievers. These are unbelievers. Okay. He says, you're going to be able to know these unbelievers, again, identify them by their fruits. In other words, what he's trying to tell them is, trying to help these Jews understand, how do you tell a false prophet from, or from a, um, a proper prophet, a good prophet? I mean, Jim was going over that in the adult class here a month or two ago. Well, one of the things he says, you're going to look at their fruits. They come and they look good, they look like they're sheep, but in reality they're a wolf and eventually that wolf character is going to demonstrate itself. So, he says, every good tree produces good fruit, but a rotten tree produces evil fruit. And The word rotten is our word sapros, like a tree that's rotten, it's not performing well. Peg and I were hiking over by Yakima, I don't know, this has probably been six or seven years back now, and there's an apple tree out in this valley. There's a few of them. You couldn't get to most of them because the bears would come in there and the bears picked everything that we could reach, so we ended up getting sticks and whacking until we knocked a couple down out of this tree up there. And we went to eat them, and they were just some of the nastiest tasting apples you'd ever seen. Uh, heard these were old trees you would have thought maybe they would have been good but i actually found from talking to people an old tree that isn't cared for and is actually in a state of decay doesn't necessarily produce great tasting fruit so he says it's a rotten tree it produces evil fruit fruit that's not producing anything that we would enjoy he says and a good tree is not able to produce that evil or rotten or bad fruit uh panayras yeah it's It's a a fruit that just, yeah, you're gonna get that taste in your mouth and it's not gonna go away. It's gonna make everything else taste bad. It says, nor is a rotten tree, that sapros, rotten tree, able to produce good fruit. Every tree that is not producing good fruit, it is cut off and it is thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And then brings us to verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom from the heavens but the one that's doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. For many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? See, these are prophets. They're false prophets, but they're prophets. And they're going to say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform mighty works or miracles in your name? And then I will confess to them, I never experientially knew you. It's not that he doesn't know who they are in the overall scheme of all humanity, but he's never had an experiential relationship with them. It goes on from there. Apart from me, or depart from me, excuse me, those of you who are working lawlessness, and that word that's translated lawlessness, or does anybody have a version that translates that differently? Okay, because the idea, remember, of lawlessness is you can't tell me what to do. You can't set any boundaries for me. You can't set any kind of standard for how I'm supposed to operate. That's lawlessness. You're not my boss. That's what lawlessness is. And he says, that's what these people are. So they're gonna stand before the judgment and say, hey, we prophesied in your name and we cast our demons in your name. And we did many, mighty miracles in your name. But he says, but I never knew you. And you're actually workers of lawlessness. You claim to be all these great things. And he's not denying that they didn't do some stuff. But there was no relationship between he and they, okay? And so the reason we come over here and and when he's talking about those of you that are working lawlessness, it just demonstrates what these false prophets really are, the kind of people these are. And the reason I come over here is because when he says by their fruits you will know them, he's talking about identifying a good prophet versus a false prophet by what you're actually gonna end up seeing. You're gonna see with a false prophet lawless activity. Which is interesting when you go to First John. John actually tells those people over there. You know, how, and John and Jim was going over this with us. You know how you tell those guys that are prophets, those antichrists? You listen to what they say, but he says you also look at other things. You see that they are devoid of love. You don't see love. You see a kind of love that something maybe the world would identify as love, but it's always going to be tainted, selfish love. It's not going to be real sacrificial love that says I will do that even if I come out on the losing end I will do what needs to be taken care of to help you so if we go back over to John 15 I think it's important for us to understand when he's talking about that every branch that's not bearing fruit we look at that we compare that to Matthew 7 and in Matthew 7 it's talking about people that are bearing bad fruit and a lot of people come and look at that, and they look over here and they go, "Oh, Peggy, you're not. I, I don't. I don't like the fruit that I see in your life. Carol, I, well, she's she's showing good fruit. So you're not a believer, and you are a believer." And I, just a couple, two or three weeks ago, I had somebody mention a Bible teacher that I used to listen to, and kind of have not listened to for the better part of the last twenty some years, and I actually pulled them up, and exactly why, because that person was teaching a message on the fact that you know what if believers are not producing good fruit they're not believers or people they can claim to be believers they can claim to believe the gospel but they're kidding themselves they're not a real believer if they're not bearing fruit this is what this person's saying and They go back to that passage over there, but that passage is not about determining who's a believer and who's an unbeliever. That passage in Matthew seven was about determining who's a false prophet, who you should listen to. He said, watch out for them. They're gonna try to tell you stuff that is not good for you. So when we come here to John chapter 15, he's talking about a branch that's in him. He is talking about a believer. We already established that. Jesus establishes that right out the gate. You can't be in Christ without being a believer. And so then he says, but they're not bearing fruit. And a lot of people would look at this and I've got a book up in my office that I picked up years ago for a couple bucks. So I thought I'd buy it. And that man in there says, well, these aren't believers because if they're not bearing fruit, they're not saved. I got to see fruit or they're not saved. This is kind of and his simplifying his whole book. He spends a book that long to basically tell you why he thinks that this is the case. But it says every branch in me that is that um, every branch in me that is not bearing fruit, he takes it away. Now, who's the he that takes it away? The vine
1: dresser.
0: The vine dresser. The father. My father is the vine dresser. So let's ask the next. Let's ask this question. From and you you all should be able to answer this question now. Some Bible some some places you might do this Bible study. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't expect them to know this, the answer to this. But uh, um, what is one of the things that the Father does with regard to the believer? Or what are some things that the Father does for believers that we know of?
1: Disciplines. That's what
0: I think He disciplines. <laughs> Where would we go to demonstrate that? Hebrews. Hebrews. Talking about coffee. So, right? Hebrews. Hebrews. He, you know, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. I'm sorry.
1: My brain's never made that connection to
0: I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start with verse 6. Well, let's go back up to verse 4. He says, You have not yet resisted to the point of blood, struggling against sin. Have you forgotten the encouragement that speaks unto you as sons? My son, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not lose heart when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges or whips severely every son whom he welcomes forward. Because this, if you endure discipline, then God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you're not a son. In other words, if a parent really loves their child, they're going to discipline the child as it's appropriate. But he says, if, if, if a child, he's talking about you as believers, if, if you're living your, and you've never had any discipline at the hand of God, well, that's probably evidence that you're, as he's trying to say here, that person, you'd be a, you'd be a, It'd be evidence that you're illegitimate, that you're not really a child of God, not really a son. Um, and this, this I just kind of add this as a as a, a, a remark on the side. I've had, I don't know, a lot of believers. Some that go to church here, some that I've run into in other places, that they go through something in life, an illness, as probably maybe the most common example or some sort of hardship and they come to me and they say, Tim, do you think I'm being disciplined? And I said, well, do you think you're being disciplined? Well, Paul says this over here in in Hebrews. I said, okay, I know what Paul says, but I'm just asking you, is there something you are doing or have been doing that you know that God would be stepping in and disciplining you for? And you said, well, I can't think of anything. I said, well, then I would say probably not because I don't think, let's put it this way. I had two daughters. I disciplined my daughters. I can guarantee you, if when my daughters were disciplined, they always knew why they were in trouble. I never just disciplined them and then just said, get out of my sight. Go to your room. No, there was always, I made sure they always understood what was wrong. My dad did that. I don't know that all parents do that, but I'm going to say with God, God does not just discipline believers and they're clueless what in the world's happening? That's the
1: whole point
0: of discipline correction. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just it's not just dad blows his top and wails on the kids, and now he feels a little bit better because he blew off some steam. The real purpose of discipline is, as he says here, that it's done out of love because you desire something better. What does he say there in verse six? Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So like these four kids over here, all of them to know, if your mom and dad ever have to deal with you in a negative disciplinary fashion, I would presume your parents are doing that because they love you. Because I can guarantee if they're anything like I was, discipline that, that old saying, this, this, this is harder on me than it is on you. I can guarantee you every time I, well, almost every time, to be honest, that I had disciplined my daughters. It was harder on me. It just broke your heart to have to kind of be harsh and hard with your with your girls. I don't know what it would have been like if I would have had a son, but I I suspect it probably would have been the same way. So he goes on here. He says, in, um, we already said here in verse 8, if you're without discipline, you're, you're illegitimate. And so I think all, well, I would say based on this, every one of us in here, we as a believer, we've all experienced discipline. That doesn't mean we all receive it to the same degree. But when it happens we realize this is God trying to get my attention because we all go off the rails at one time or another. And it may be small, may be big, but God's going to deal with this out of love. goes on, verse nine. Furthermore, it says, we had fathers according to the flesh and they disciplined us uh, and they were disciplining us. He says, how much more shall we submit to the father of spirits and live? They did it for a few days according to what seemed good to them. But he is doing it that we might benefit so that we might share in his holiness. All discipline in the present does not seem joyous. And there's not a lot of joy, you know, when... When you're getting in trouble with your from your parents, you're not going, oh, yay, I'm getting a spanking, or yay, I'm having to stand in the corner, or oh, yay, I have to go sit in my room on the bed, and I can't have a book or something to goof around with. I just have to lay here, and stare at the ceiling, and think about what I did. Whatever it might be, you'll look at that and go, this is fun, this is joyous. He says it doesn't seem joyous, but rather, he says, it is grievous or causes grief. But later... It produces the peaceable fruit. It pays back righteousness by those that are trained by it. So he gives us a long explanation about about this, what we would call the negative side of discipline. On Sundays, we've been kind of looking at the positive side of discipline connected with the grace of God. But this is the negative side of discipline. And as parents, we do both, right? There's positive training and there's negative training. (laughs) And uh, we'd always like it to be a positive training, but sometimes we have to do this. But the whole point is over here in verse nine, it tells us that we're submitting to the Father of Spirits. And we're talking, so when we're talking about the Lord and God in this passage, the one that's disciplining us is our Father. We're not being disciplined by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not being disciplined by the Holy Spirit. It's the Father is the one that decides that the discipline is to be carried out. That's his decision, which interestingly enough, when you go to Ephesians and Colossians and it talks about family life the father is the one that's held responsible for the discipline of the kids and I would just say even if it's turned over to mom in dad's absence ultimately the father is the one responsible to make sure that that actually is carried out Okay, Peggy we're going to say something the father of spirits I'm just going to pass on that one I hate to disappoint you but I'm not going to I won't bluff at the time. I would have to think about that and look at some other scriptures. Uh, There's a good chance that he's talking about spirits that were providing revelation. But again, that would be a guess. So if we go back over here to Hebrews chapter 15. John 15. Yes, thank you. John 15. What it tells us here in verse 2, that every branch in me that is not bearing fruit, he takes it. And that word takes it, ireo, can mean to pick it up. It can mean to lift it up. It can mean to take away. It is a word that is not of itself defining in terms of enough of what goes on. But I would understand this to mean that this this is just the term that he's using for whatever form of discipline the father has to engage in. He does this. When you as a believer aren't bearing fruit, which he intends for you to do, the father's going to step in and he's going to engage in some discipline to get you doing what he has planned for you to do. You're his child with his nature. He expresses you to express that nature in terms of this fruit. So all that makes sense. Does it? Okay. Any comments or questions before we take the next part? So, <clears throat> say that one more time. He takes, he takes away. You're saying, like, say that one more time. Right? I, I, the, well, the word takes away, it's just simply the word IREO, which is a word meaning to take. can mean to lift, it can mean to take in the sense of take it away. It can, can mean lift up. There's a number of different ways. I mean, so... It's, it, when you read commentaries in this, people are saying, well, if you got a branch and it's not bearing fruit, one of the things that the, a vineyard girl will do is to take that and he'll lift it up and tie it up higher so that it's getting more sunlight. So maybe it, that'll help it produce more fruit. Whatever might be meant precisely by that, I believe he's talking because it's what the father's doing with one that's not bearing fruit. He's talking about some form of discipline. And what he takes to get uh, attention or uh, my attention in discipline might be different than what it takes to get your attention or to get your attention. You know, it's just not, it's just like with your kids, you know, you, you want to, you want, you, you, you don't want your kids to think that you're disciplined unfairly, but sometimes you have kids that you're like, you know, this thing, I do this with this kid, that kid's going to crumble and learn something. I do that with that kid over there and that kid's just going to go, ha, I got away with, you know, it takes different things. And God knows, God knows what we need. What each of us is an individual need. Yes, Peggy. You're thinking. So every branch that does not bear fruit. Wait, no. It does not bear
1: fruit. There's two there's doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. If it every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes.
0: Yeah, that does bear fruit. Oh it does bear
1: fruit. Sorry. Okay, so this.
0: Bearing fruit is living out what's true about us. Yeah, it's going to be, that fruit's going to be is it, it's, demonstrating is it, love, it's going to be demonstrating joy. Sorry, in fact, is it that, that fruit in the spirit? Right. Okay, so that's. Okay, so should, yeah, that's, that, and it's going to be the way that that fruit is expressed. Okay. Which you have down in the context when he's going to be talking to them about love and he's going to be talking about if you just look down here in this very same context, look down in verse um, 11. I've spoken these things to you that my my joy might be in you. And that your joy might be... What's joy? It's another part of the fruit from the Spirit. So he says part of this is about joy. Think about that. Is there a possibility that God might enter into discipline with the believer? That by choice, by choice walks around like this all the time downturned face hands dragging on the ground oh woes me my life oh hard hard life everything and they just they and there are people that you run into that no matter how much you try to encourage them they always are seeing the underside of everything and God may actually enter into a little bit of discipline to try to bring that believer along because God doesn't intend us to be believers that are just walking around sullen all the time. But then you go on from there in verse 12, this is my command that you love one another. See, it comes back to that new command again. So again, we've got, we've got joy, we've got love. We get it, eventually we'll get down in the context and he's going to talk to us about peace. So I, I, I think we have good evidence that this is the fruit from the Spirit, but that fruit from the Spirit, remember, is others-related. It's not just circumstance-related. It really is others-related, okay, in that regard. Uh, yeah, it was... Yeah, um, I, I, I don't know if I started talking to Ben about this. I We might have started talking about this, but yesterday afternoon... Um, Josh called, I, I, call, I contacted him and I, he said, hey, let's talk at this time tomorrow. And so he got he called me when he was ready and we sat and talked a little bit about your baptism. But then we just, we ended up talking. I bet we talked an hour, hour and a half, just about all kinds of other stuff. And and it was, it's always encouraging to talk with other believers about the fact that God's one of God's big purposes for us as believers really is the way we interact with each other. That's really one of God's big purposes. It's, it's, it's that love command, but that love isn't the only thing. It's about peace and joy with other believers. It's about being patient with other believers and, and the rest of the fruit from the Spirit. Those things are all talking about qualities that we need with other people. And you know why you need those qualities with other people. Because those people have sin natures just like I do. And they can sometimes be hard to deal with, and you have, you know, so sometimes you need those qualities so that you can be interacting with them the way God wants you to. So back here, did, did we answer your question okay. about the fruit? Do I have this right? The Father disciplines us for our good, so if we are not expressing the fruit from the Spirit towards other believers, He will discipline us, perhaps even taking us home. And He might, and which then brings us to the fact that that word irao could just mean to take us and it means that he just maybe takes the branch off if you got a believer that's just devoid of fruit takes that believer home at a point point. and he said as much over there in hebrews 12 he says the lord every son that the lord loves he disciplines and he scourges or whips with severity he changes from just a word for discipline to a severe word he says he he disciplines with severity Every son whom he receives forward. In other words, if he brings them home, he receives them into his presence. No believer comes into his presence and they've got, let's say, they died back in Paul's day of discipline because they were ornery and just nothing but trouble. And they've been for 2,000 years up there in the presence of God, just always like, oh, 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 I'm so bad, I'm so bad. It, there's no purgatory. That's not what it is. He welcomes them. He brings them in. And there is a relief from that. Uh, one, of, one of my friends used to, used to say, the believer that doesn't learn how to live with love and joy here on earth, God will, if they just refuse to do that, God will bring them home because because they, while they're miserable here, they won't be miserable there. Despite the fact that I just read somebody the other day that made the comment again, and I hadn't heard this said for a long time, but I used to hear this, you're lear- you are you are learning or earning your capacity for heaven. So their idea is that heaven won't be the same for everybody. If I really am living a great Christian life and really learn to interact with everybody, I'll get to heaven, and man, it's going to be great for me. But if you've always been that person that kind of sits against the wall and you're kind of quiet, and I don't know, that's what heaven's going to be like for you. Baloney. We're all going to be transformed when we see Christ. We're not going to be the kind of people we are now. So, the takeaway here in verse two, when he said "takes away," can include the fact that there are some believers that he takes home.
1: But you're, but you are, you are separating. And some people, like you mentioned, or to, some people read this and they look at this as a a salvation issue. Mm-hmm. And I think that they do that because they combine that into verse 6. If anyone has not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather him and they cast him into the fire and they are burned. And I'm sure you're going to talk about it later, so we're we'll going to talk about it now. But, I would, I would venture to say that most people are going to look at this as, I guess they're going to miss those first, those first uh, four words in verse 2. Every branch in me.
0: That's right. They don't... They don't. Let's put it this way. To be real honest, I don't think that there's enough Christians that fully understand what it means to be in Christ. That is such a big foundational issue for the whole Christian. Not just the Christian life. If you appreciate that, then you look at that and you're going to take that more seriously. Because some people just look at it going, oh, this was somebody that kind of had an association with Jesus. I've heard people say that. They just kind of were tag-alongs. Um, like, I again just reading another article that somebody mentioned this the other day about a singer from a christian band that deconstructed and walked away from the christian faith yeah. and i and i listened to an a two-part interview which that sean mcdowell did with him and sean asked him just kind of point blank could anybody ever confront you with the fact that you're a sinner and that you needed a savior and he was raised in a church in a pastor's home and ended up being part of this band, actually lead singer in the band. And he said, no, no one ever did that. I just wanted to be part of something that was cool and something that meant something. That was, that was his salvation experience. And so, what? Yeah, it should, that's right. Well, and he would claim he's not a believer. He says he's never walked was. away. He, yeah, he never was a believer. Exactly. But some people would look at that and say, see, he was one of those tag-alongs. He, he kind of, you know, tagged along Christianity, but he wasn't really ever a believer. But Jesus wouldn't say, well, that was a branch in me because he was never in him. He was never in Christ. On top of that, let's... We've got one other question to deal with, and we I am going to save the whole gathering them up and throwing them out that they... We're, I'm going to save that for when we get there. But the other thing is... Everybody that is actually cast out and goes to the lake of fire, who's responsible for that? They are. They are.
1: Well,
0: they are. You mean who's responsible
1: for putting them there? But yes. Like who's judging them?
0: Yes, there we go.
1: Christ.
0: That's right. Christ. Remember back in Matthew 7? When we, the verse passage we just looked at, he says, they will come and say, Didn't we we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty miracles? And he says, and I, this is Jesus speaking, I will say to them, you depart from me. I, or I never knew you. Depart from me, you those that work lawlessness.'" He's the one that's going to say, depart. He's the one, stay here in the gospel of John and flip back to John chapter five. Go back to John chapter five. John chapter 5 and look with me in verse 22 it says for not even the fa- not even does the father judge anybody we actually kind of have like a double negative in here meaning the father does not judge no one <laughs> that's that in english would mean he does judge someone but this is he doesn't judge anyone but He has given, and that word is given here, he's looking at, he has given all judgment to the Son for the purpose that all should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. So the Father is not the one that judges people. He's not the one that casts anybody in the lake of fire. (coughs) In fact, um, you can go back over to John 15, but we've got a number of passages. You go to Acts 17 where Paul's on Mars Hill. And he says, God has appointed a day in which he's going to judge all the world by a man whom he raised from the dead. And that's where Paul's talk goes off the rails as far as those guys are concerned because they all deny the resurrection. The Greeks didn't believe in the resurrection. The minute they heard that, they couldn't listen to anymore. But Jesus is the judge. He is the judge. He's the one, it's, to me, it's always very interesting. He's the one who bore our judgment but he's also the one who judges those who down and do not enjoy the benefit of the fact that their judgment has been carried by him. So if we come back over here to John fifteen, if the Father is the one that's taking away, if that's judgment, and see, and this is this is a point. I was talking with Steve today down at Josh's father in law. He was they were down kind of for the opening and everything. And so he and I are standing in an, an aisle. And he says, and, he says he, and he's getting to teach in this church over there. And he's enjoying being with these people and everything. And he says, but he says, Tim, it's been a long time since I've been around people that don't, that really know so little. He says, when you listen to people pray, he says, it's always dear Jesus, this, Jesus, do this, Jesus, do this, Jesus, do that. And yet we're going to see right here in the upper room. Jesus says, you will not ask me for one thing. You are going to ask the Father in my name, he's going to say. That's what you're going to do. He says, don't ask me. Ask the Father. And Paul says that. Paul never says, I ask. Well, one time he says, I asked the Lord three times. And the Lord said, my grace is enough. But that's because the Lord was appearing to him in his situation and he asks him in that but otherwise paul says i thank the father and i praise the father and i ask the father and always in the name of the son or in the character of the son see so he's talking about this but then that just he and i were talking about that that then they're praying and they, and then they'll sometimes they'll say, and, and sometimes they'll say, Father, thank you so much for all that you do for us. And thank you for dying on the cross. Well, the father didn't die on the cross. And I realize people, we stumble with our tongues, our tongues get ahead of our, our, our brains. And if you ask those people, did the father die for you? They go, oh no, it's a sign. But you said this. It's just a fact, and he and I were talking about this, that in Christianity, a lot of people make no distinctions on the persons of the Trinity. They, they may believe in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. They may agree the, on the doctrine of the Trinity in that sense. But if you ask them, why is this important? They have no clue. Because it's, it's like, I always put it this way. we Sometimes we look at, at the Trinity and it's like they're the Three Stooges. Which I can still find the Three Stooges funny. My wife just really can't stand them. Because she's like nobody in, in their wildest mind do you have three grown men all trying to do exactly the same job in the same place at the same moment in time which is why people get hit on the head with hammers and all that funny stuff that we laugh at when you watch them but that's the way sometimes the people look at the trinity is that they look at those three persons and they don't distinguish what they're doing and by distinguishing the fact that jesus told us that i'm the true vine My father's the farmer. And the farmer is the one that lifts up the branch. Then you look at scripture and say, well, what does the father do? He disciplines. Does he judge? No. That's the son's responsibility. The father, right in this very book, he has told us more than once that the father has committed that judgment to him. He does it in John 5. He's going to do it, talk to it again in John chapter 12. So So when we're talking about this, this is what we're trying to say, is if, when you look at this, if, if I didn't know any, if this is the only passage I'd ever read on this, I think I would come and say, um, is this person going away? Is this person going to hell? But since if you've re- been reading the whole book, which John presumes that you started at the beginning and you've read now up to John 15, you're going to go, oh, these are in him. We just read about that just, just a, a couple paragraphs back. Those are talking about us believers. Oh, okay, so these are believers. See, the, he expects that they're gonna know that. And then he talks about the fact that this one's gonna take and they're gonna go, well, I've already read Jesus says, I, he's the one that does judgment, not the Father, see? So he expects that even in this very book, you've read some of these things and that you're able to piece together who that, well, he's not doing this, but he's doing this. Does all that make sense what I'm saying? Because I don't think, what I'm trying to demonstrate, it's not really convoluted. Some people, I've explained this once to somebody, they say, well, that's kind of a really convoluted explanation. I said, it's not. It's just paying attention to scripture that says, this person does this, this person does this, and this person does this. That's the way they do it. They're all one God, but they each have different roles. The Father and the Spirit didn't die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. That's one of the easiest ways to demonstrate that they each had unique roles. But the value of the death of the Son was heightened by the fact that there were two persons that didn't die on the cross and he experienced separation from those two people while he's on the cross. That made his death inordinately bigger than just a man hanging on a cross outside Jerusalem. And so, but you don't understand that if you don't understand these differences of these persons like this. Now let's go look at the next phrase. Does anybody have a comment or question here?
1: just a comment. Yeah, please. Yeah, as you delineate and draw distinctions. It is interesting, you know, that it never, well, I don't know, maybe it does, but I just, i can't think of it. It says that the Spirit sent the Son. You always think of the Father sending the Son. And I guess in that regard, just, you know, Heavenly Father, God the Son. Yeah, just, I, the Spirit's like, in my mind, is compartmentalized differently. Mm-hmm. You know, like less tangible (laughs) giver of gifts, but and maybe that's just their roles, right?
0: This uh, there's a passage in Isaiah sixty-one. If you want to look at it, just I, I just want to play with what Ben's saying for just a moment here. And Jesus quotes this. He quotes it. It's quoted in the book of Luke at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. He's in his hometown of Nazareth in their synagogue when he reads this. The event ends with the people in the synagogue taking Jesus out and they're going to throw him over the cliff at the edge of their town because of, he applies this to himself. What? You? This is in Isaiah 61. And at the end of Isaiah 60, in verse 22 we see that the person who is talking in Isaiah 60 and verse 22 says, I the Lord, I'm going to hasten it in its time. And you could go back up in the context and you can see that this is the Lord that's talking. Verse 1. And remember there was no chapter divisions. So when he's talking about I the Lord, this this is the Lord, all capital letters referring to Yahweh. He's speaking. The spirit then of Adonai, this is really interesting, we're going to get off, uh, de- interesting detail, they, we're just going to keep it simple, okay, I'm not going to explain another detail here, there's, but there's a crazy thing they did in the English translations because of a problem they got themselves into, but verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This is what he reads in the synagogue. And he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. He's talking about himself. In other words, he's saying, I am this one. And those Jews knew that he was referring, that he's calling himself God because they knew that this is one who is called Yahweh. They couldn't put, the, the Jews couldn't put this together. How is Yahweh being anointed by Yahweh? How's that happen? They couldn't put that together. They couldn't figure that out. But Jesus is explaining, God the Father is the one that sends him, sends him, and when he sends him, you're asking, well, what did the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit then anointed him. The Holy Spirit anointed him so that in the realm of his human nature, he could rely on, an, not just on his own abilities, but on, the Holy Spirit to accomplish a number of things that he did. He cast out demons by the work of the Spirit. Yeah. See? So, yeah, the, the Holy Spirit plays actually a really key role. In fact, remember, that's casting out those demons. He says, that's why he says, you can blaspheme me all day. That's okay. But you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's not going to be forgiven now, and it won't be forgiven in the age to come. If you blaspheme, if you because what they were doing is they were attributing his, apo- his power to cast out demons. To Beelzebul the prince of demons and he says you are insulting the Holy Spirit and that will not be forgiven you which to me is really amazing we think insulting Christ would be the bigger deal but Christ said no I was insulting the spirit that anointed him as God and empowering him to do this so as Ben's saying you don't always see the spirit it's not always immediately obvious but the spirit is is front and center in what's happening. The father sends the son, but the spirit has to be right there to make sure at the moment that Mary conceives, the spirit spirit comes in there and causes the conception and then overshadows to make sure that 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 child that is conceived does not have any trait of of Mary's sinfulness. Because there are people that teach children get their sinfulness from, from their father. I was kind of taught this growing up. And they did that because, well, Jesus didn't have an earthly father, he just had an earthly mother, so mothers apparently don't pass their sin trait on them. Baloney. that's why the Holy Spirit had to come and make sure, <laughs> that's why the Holy Spirit had to come and make sure that, uh, that Jesus wasn't tainted even by the sinful nature of Mary. Of course, the Catholic version of, ta- of solving that problem is to say that Mary was sinless. So they have the Mary also is, anyway. So all of this to say, when we're coming and we're looking at these three persons of the God and what they're doing, I want to come back here to fit John fifteen two, and I want to look at the last part of this and think about this with regard to us here before we finish. Please do. That
1: part that you said about the last minion, you know, the way you just explained it, it's almost like like Jesus, like Christ, was standing up for the spirit. Like no, you, no, you don't. You You, you don't talk about him like that. I haven't thought about it like that before. Yeah. Well, I always think of the Holy Spirit as he's always behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. He's not out there front and center, but he gets stuff done. Mm-hmm. And he's just as important, but you, he's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I would almost argue that because Christ said, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to give you some, I'm going to give you help. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. he's front and center right now. So yeah. I mean, it is. We always say that Jesus is doing this in me, and there is truth because we've been regenerated. It's complicated, but inevitably, the Spirit is the one that empowers us to, to have fruit and, you know, and to, to live a spiritual life. Mm-hmm.
0: And what like, you what I
1: understand, you're saying exactly that.
0: and what you were saying, I was just the verse that first popped into my mind when you said that is what Jesus says over in John chapter three: "The Spirit's like the wind." You see what it does, but you don't see it itself. <laughs> he says, you see the effect of the wind. And so if you get Christians that are living the Christian life, you see the effect of the Spirit's work, but you don't see the Spirit himself. If you're a Christian, you can go, oh, that's the Spirit's work. But if you're not a Christian, you don't know why people are like that. You don't know why people are like that. Which then I have to, I have to share. it be a good time because I really wanted to share this with you and I was going to do it off. <laughs> Off, but I was talking to my, my, my mom shared this with me yesterday and then I talked to my sister today and she shared this. And this last weekend, she went, with what? what? Yeah, yeah, they're on here. So, but um, my my sister was, she went to she went to some friends place this weekend that she's been friends with for a long time. And uh, they were going to watch the Iowa Hawkeyes play football. And so they're watching the football game and there's a, a point that, her friend wants her to go out. and They go out to the kitchen, and her friend tells her, when they're talking out there, she says, "I just want you to know, I'm, I'm a believer, I'm saved." And it was Allie's testimony over the many years as Allie has encouraged her, and she's watched Allie go through a lot of junk <laughs> and different stuff that has been really hard for her, and that, and the way she handled that, and it was always. And she is like that. I mean, I had, I was telling Allie today we're talking, I said, I had, I had a time like three months ago that, I mean, I came under a, such a hard satanic attack and I was just like uh, dragging my heels and everything like that. And she called me one day and she's talking to me and she goes, what's the matter? You know, and I started telling her, oh, I'm, I'm grumping about this stuff and I know I shouldn't. She says, you're under satanic attack. You need to put on the armor of God. <laughs> you know, and, and she told me, she said, She said, my mom was actually the one in a Bible study that walked her and taught her the armor of God. She says, but it wasn't until her husband left her and she just nosedived and went into this, just this long pit of despair, just really miserable for a long time, that she actually learned for the first time to really consistently practice the Christian life. Up to that point, it was all just head knowledge. But then she went through this really downtime. And I, I say all that just because, you know, it's... It's this work of God in us that does these things. And if you know other people could look at her, her, her friend could have looked at her and gone, yeah, you're just trying to be better than me. You're just trying to be a good person. That's all you're trying to do. But she could look at her and say, no, it's God in you. I know that that's God working in you. And that made a difference in her life, see, by watching that. Which brings me to the last phrase, which I want to hit very quickly here at the end. I make no promises, but I'm going to try to hit it quickly. Every branch bearing fruit... He prunes it that it might bear more fruit. Now the word prune, we translate that prune, but if you were a Greek, you were reading that, and it's simply the word "kathrao," which meant to clean up. But think about that. When they go through and prune in the orchard, whether they prune in, the, in this time of year, or there's summertime that they do a little pruning, or in the wintertime, they really clean it up because that tree just gets so full of branches and it's just got all these little shoots going all over the place and they want that thing to focus its power into producing fruit, not just sending out more and more little branches all over the place. And so prune is, is fine. That's a legitimate way to understand it in, in terms of what you're talking about with the vine, but it is the word clean. And what is it? So he says, you're bearing fruit but the Father comes along and He wants to prune you, so you bear even more fruit. In simple terms, what's He talking about? You already are bearing fruit. But what, how, how would you explain to somebody what pruning is then? Well, this is, this is the way I would look. What? Well, it, the purpose of it would be growth. I would just look at it this way. If you're living the Christian life and you're bearing fruit, as this one, as this type of branch is doing here, are you bearing fruit all the time? Because is your mind where it should be all the time? And do we sometimes get our focus from who we are in Christ to, oh, this thing right here. Watching the Iowa Hawkeyes play football. You know, just, I don't know what it is. Just use, I was thinking of my sister's, what she was talking about. We have all kinds of things like this that we become very enamored with. And those things sometimes get in the way of us bearing more fruit. And the Lord has to come along, just like they do in the orchard. And he has to come along and say, and I said, the Lord, but this is the father that's doing this. This is the father's role. He's looking at, he says, you're my child. And you know, this really, this, this thing over here, this is detracting from the growth I want to see in you. I'm gonna take that off. Re-focus. What?
1: Refocus.
0: Refocus, yeah. He's, there, there are things in our life that he's going to, that he's going to be removing that are keeping us from bearing the fruit that he wants us to bear. We, we're bearing fruit, but he wants us to bear even more fruit. And sometimes for us to go on and bear more fruit, there are certain things that he needs to prune and clean off. Certain ways of thinking. Certain activities for some of us, certain pursuits. I, I, it's it's different for every one of us. But I think we could we could just say that there are things every one of us. There's not a one of us that's immune from things that distract us from opportunity that God puts this opportunity for us to bear fruit here, and we're like, yeah, but I was going to go do this, <laughs> and I and I have that, you know. I I deal with that too. My wife is really giving me this look over here. I'm
1: just trying to the next
0: and he says, you already are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. In other words, Jesus has already been saying some things that have been clearing junk away from these disciples. They were, they were already being submitted to certain things that other people hadn't been submitted to in terms of listening to things that Jesus said. Case in point, they're all taking a trip together. They're all walking down the road. And the disciples are back there having an argument. Do you remember? An argument about?
1: Who's going to sit on his right? Or who's going to. I don't know.
0: Okay, who's going to sit on his right? Who, did somebody else say? Who's going to be first? Who's going to be first? Yeah. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And what does Jesus end up telling You, you know who the one is greatest in the kingdom? The one that learns to serve. The one that learns to serve. So one of the things that he was working on these disciples trying to figure out is, this is not about who gets to be first in line. This is not about who gets the top, who gets the blue ribbon. This is not about who wins. This is not about first place. This is about serving people. And you know, the person that serves sometimes may kind of come in late in the race because they're stopping to help somebody else along the course. That wouldn't be great for a cross-country runner but (laughs) in a race down here. But in the spiritual race of life, that's a big deal, is learning to serve. And sometimes learning to serve means we miss out on other things. And I wish I could think of another example, but this is the one that I, and I'll just keep it really short instead of telling you the long version. And some of you have heard me tell this story, but I had a young man that I was tutoring up at the school five days a week and I was invited to come to a conference in California. I was really excited to go down there and speak a couple times at that conference. But you know what? It just I just did not feel that's what God wanted me to do, which was just crazy. I was like, why in the world does God not want me to go to that conference? Long story short, the day that I would have been at that conference I ended up in a conflict with that young man like I had never had in that room before. I mean, he was so belligerent that day. And before the day was over, that kid who had left showed up at the church, showed up in my office in that afternoon and believed in Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> I shared the gospel with him that morning up there. In the midst of his belligerence, I said, you don't need... I said, I'm not saying this math and all this stuff we're working isn't good for you. But I said, you need Jesus Christ. <laughs> Cuss me out. and Tell me what... I. And I just told him who Christ was. And I and all this stuff. Anyway, I'm just saying, I could have said, nope, I'm going to that conference in California. I'm just, I'm going to go to that. I, there's no way. I wouldn't, if, if you would have told me, I bet you'll be able to share the gospel and see that kid come to salvation. I wouldn't do Him? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, he was a pretty rough kid. He was. He was a pretty rough kid. And uh, I just, it's, it's just one of those things that sometimes when you think this is what, clearly I'm supposed to do this is what I and this is what I want to do I wanted to go there I I could care less if I was going to go and put another day in tutoring with him that was driving me nuts God had something else and so there are things sometimes and I'm not saying that that of itself that that was a bad thing I mean certainly that I wasn't choosing to do a bad thing it just wasn't what God wanted me to do in that instance there were other things there were other things so I think all, and I, and I bet all of us have been there. We've all, we've all been at a time when we kind of come to a crossroads and we've got two options and neither one of them are like, oh, this is an evil thing, this is a good thing. We look at them both and it's like, man, they both are good things. I mean, they look like they're okay. But you pray about it and you're like, you really feel God wants you to do this, but there's a kind of a part of you that would really kind of maybe do this. This would be the preferential thing. But you're convinced God wants you to go do this and you do this only to afterwards go, there's no way I could have seen God put that together better than he did. And if I would have gone the way I wanted, I don't know, there might have been some good stuff there too, but this was this was just something I didn't I couldn't foresee. And I just think that that's important that he prunes that. And I think that statement is really helpful for us to always look at our lives and say, I don't think we need to be introspective all the time, but I think we need to seriously give give some consideration of the fact that we all have things that we're holding on to and it's gonna go on, I think, as long as we're breathing the air down here that there's things that God is just going to be progressively helping remove from our life until eventually we realize, you know, this this doesn't really matter. This thing that mattered to me when it doesn't really matter anymore. This. I would wouldn't trade this for anything else. Anyway, does anybody have a comment or question on that before we tie it, before we close? And does that make sense, that idea of pruning, what he's talking about, cleaning them? Cuts off. What? It removes,
1: cuts off, cleans away distractions or things from our lives.
0: I would just say he cleans any any we could say anything that is going to prevent us from bearing more fruit. Cuz that's what he says. The whole purpose of the pruning is to bear more fruit. And pruning obviously is something that is is, you know, maybe a little bit tough for us to go through. So Okay, when you go over that, I just you don't have to raise your hand or anything like that. But I'm just just wondering. Do you ever read that? I remember one of the first times I went through that. Somebody was somebody else was teaching this, and I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder what things God needs to prune in my life. Is that, I I think I, I think it's maybe good to be a little introspective to say oh, just to pay attention. God may. But I but God, I think He's doing it. He's not asking us to be those that are kind of going, oh, what do I need to get rid of out of my life? I don't He doesn't say it, He's doing this. He's going to put us in a situation where he's going to help us realize that I mean, that can go. We can let go of this. And and I do think it's also important to note that he doesn't say in here that he's pruning away stuff that are that's necessarily evil or bad. I mean, branches growing on a vine or in trees, they're not bad of themselves. They just can sometimes sap what needs to go to bearing fruit. So, Yeah, yeah, exactly so